This morning we talked about Romans chapter 7 and 8, and we looked at how the transformation that has been described a number of times throughout Romans is played out in these chapters. You see that as Christians, we, going back to chapter 5, we have a new Adam. Instead of an Adam who brings condemnation and sin and death into our world, we have Christ as our new Adam and representative who brings salvation and life and, and uh, righteousness. We see in Romans chapter 6 that there is a slavery of sin which leads to death. But we have been freed from that so that we now have a slavery to God that leads to life. As you look through chapters 7 and 8, the new contrast is of a life that is lived in the flesh, seeking the desires and the passions of the flesh that leads to death, and the life that has been freed of that, that is now a life that is animated and motivated by the Spirit and is led by the Spirit. And that is a life that ends in life or that ends in glory. Glory actually becomes a really important word in Romans chapter 8, but it's also an important word that, that starts our whole conversation off. Back in chapter 5, uh, I'm going to read quickly, uh, but chapter 5, the first two verses, says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice or boast or exult in hope of the glory of God. You have this idea of this glory. Well, he's going to get back to the idea of glorification, of the glory of God being something that we actually share in, in Romans chapter 8. So in Romans 8, the result is glorification. The result is glory. But along the way, there's hardship. Along the way, there is struggle. Along the way, there is suffering. What we're going to do in our lesson tonight is look at how Paul describes the transformation from suffering to glory in Romans chapter 8. He talks about how in this life there is absolutely going to be suffering. There is going to be hardship and there's going to be turmoil. But that's not the end of the story. There is glory at the end of that story. In fact, suffering is a part of the journey that leads to the glory that God has prepared for us. If you look with me at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28... We're going to look at a couple of passages that are sometimes, uh, I think, misused in a, in a few ways, and some passages that are somewhat well-known, but uh, aren't always used in a way that is uh, you know, most uh, conducive to, to understanding uh, Paul and to understanding life uh, as we live it as Christians. But in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30 is where our lesson's mostly going to come from. And in this, we see Paul wrapping up or making his conclusion to the argument that he's been giving this whole time about how the Spirit will lead us through suffering and into glory itself. And so if you look with me at Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. This passage, uh, as I said, it's, it's a famous passage. It's an encouraging passage. It's actually a passage that is important to keep in your mind as you're going through suffering and as you're going through hardship. I think this passage is uh, helpful to remember that God is at work. Even when we don't see what uh, good is being accomplished or what good could be accomplished, know that God is at work and know that God can turn even the most devastating and horrendous circumstances into something good. As a matter of fact, that, that story of God turning suffering into something good is a common story throughout the Bible. You can go back to Genesis and you can see that there was real bad that took place. 
real suffering. This is not a passage that says, oh, okay, God makes everything good for Christians, and so there is no suffering, and there's nothing that's actually bad, or even the bad thing is actually secretly a good thing. I don't think that's it. I think there really is bad. There really is suffering. And yet, even though there really is evil and bad and suffering in this world, that's not what will ultimately be victorious. God can turn the real bad into something that produces glory. He can turn it into something that is good. So in Genesis, you have Joseph, whose brothers hate him, and they really hate him, and that's really bad, and they want to kill him. They have those, that level of hatred towards him. And uh, after a series of events, they decide not to, not to kill him, but instead to throw him in a pit, and then eventually they decide to sell him as a slave. That, that works better, because that way you actually get something out of it, and you don't have to deal with your brother anymore. And so that's the decision they make, and they sell him, and he ends up as a slave in Egypt. And there's a long story about him being a slave in Egypt, him ending up in prison, him coming out of prison, him being elevated to, uh, to the Pharaoh's household. And because of God's uh, continued presence with Joseph, even through all of those circumstances, he's eventually able to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh that lead to Egypt preparing uh, for a seven-year drought that no one else was prepared for. So when that seven-year drought hits and that seven years of famine comes their way, uh, all peoples from all over, they start flocking to Egypt because Egypt is the one place where they can find the food that they need. And the only way they were able to do that is because God revealed that to Joseph. And the only reason Joseph was there was because his brothers had sold him into slavery years earlier. So Joseph being sold into slavery ended up bringing about salvation to many people, including his family that sold him there, because they end up having to go to Egypt. And so like this whole, this whole chain of events, at the very end of it, you realize, oh, if they hadn't sold him into slavery, that never would, they, they would have not survived the drought. It's like he saved many lives because he was sold into slavery. And Joseph comes, this is how Genesis ends. This is chapter 50. Uh, when Joseph, talking to his brothers, says, I've come to realize that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. Now, all along that process, when he's, when, when he's taken forcefully by his brothers, he doesn't see the good. When he's in the pit, he doesn't see the good. When he's bound by the traitors being taken to, to Egypt, he doesn't see the good. When he's a slave in Potiphar's house, it's hard to see the good. When he's in prison, it's really hard to see the good. It's not until the story is ended and he's looking back over things that he realizes this actually produced something good. And that doesn't mean that the brothers didn't sin. And it doesn't mean that the brothers actually secretly somehow did something good. No, it was real evil and it brought about real pain and real suffering. Yet God can work even through legitimate suffering to produce something good. Sometimes that thing is experienced in this life and in this world, like what happened with Joseph. Like he was able to see the good ultimately in his own life. There are times when the good that God works is not something that necessarily is good for my life or my success or my retirement or my happiness or my well-being. Sometimes the good is something that produces for the kingdom or for God's glory. And sometimes the good might not be something I ever see in this life, but it's good that is finally realized when that glorification takes place, when the end occurs. Uh, and so you can go through the Bible and you see that this isn't just a Genesis story. This is the story uh, that is the, the center of the story of the gospel, of suffering being used by God to bring about something good. 
Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That is not a good thing that was done. Like That is not good that people rejected Jesus, that people lied about Jesus, that Jesus was illegally tried. Those are all sins, and they are bad. Nailing Jesus to the cross, flogging him, those are sins that are the epitome of evil. As a matter of fact, it's the darkest and most evil moment in human history. So dark that the cosmos itself turns into darkness. Like, that's what's happening at that moment. And yet, even the darkest and most sinful things that the powers and the authorities and the demonic forces of this earth, and even human beings at their worst, as they join together to create this world of sin and darkness, even the worst thing they can conjure, which is the execution of the Son of God himself, God can turn that into the story of our salvation. God can turn that into the execution of sin and bring about glory and resurrection and life eternal on the other side. It doesn't mean that it wasn't really bad. It doesn't mean that it wasn't really suffering. It, it was the fact that it was bad and that it was suffering that God was able to use to bring about something that is truly good. And that's a story we're supposed to remember in our lives and remember even as we face and endure and go through suffering. This is not a promise that suffering won't happen or that suffering is, is somehow actually a secret good. But it is the idea that even through suffering, God can still work. Even through your suffering, God can produce something good in the world or in the kingdom or in eternity. Uh, you, you see some of this idea actually earlier in Romans. Back to Romans chapter 5, we, we are summing up in chapter 8 an argument that started in Romans chapter 5, or at least uh, Romans chapter 5 is, is a really important part along the way. And you see the same type of idea about the tribulations and the suffering how they can actually end up producing something of value. Uh, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, Paul says, And not only this, but we also exalt or boast or rejoice uh, in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who is given to us. By the way, uh, just think about that phrase right there, how the tribulation brings about perseverance. Well, you know, you can, you, can, you can survive through it, and you can continue on and grow from it, and you can pres uh, pres be preserved through it. That brings proven character, and proven character, hope. Hope is in chapter 8 of Romans. Like, that, that's what he's, I mean, we, we've already talked about how in Romans chapter 8, in verse 24, in hope, we have been saved. Like hope is an essential part of salvation because if you're suffering without hope, then you won't endure or persevere through that suffering. Like hope is what keeps you moving forward even through the process of suffering. And so he begins Romans 5 talking about suffering, talking about glory, talking about hope, and he ends chapter 8 talking about suffering, talking about glory, talking about hope. As you keep reading in, in Romans chapter 5, he says the hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. The love of God is the final ultimate source of victory in Romans chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Like he goes through that list and none of those things, opposing armies with all of their force and all of their might, can't separate you from the love of God. The worst drought you've ever seen, the, the plague or a famine or, or disease, like nothing is powerful enough 
to separate you from the love of God. But that love of God, going back to chapter 5, is something that is poured out in our hearts even through times of suffering. And he says at the end of chapter 5 and verse 5, the love of God which has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Chapter 8 is all about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit brings us back to life after death. The Holy Spirit groans through our sufferings on our behalf to God, making intercession for us. Like, so, so Romans 5, the first paragraph there, is bringing out all of the major ideas that Paul is leading us to through chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, until you get to this, this climactic chapter 8 where they all come to a head again and we realize that all of these have been an essential part along the journey to the ultimate glorification that God has. It started with suffering and through the love of God, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, through the hope that we keep and remain, we end up with the glory that God has prepared for us. So God can work all things for good, even to the, to the extent of eternal glorification to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That idea of being called according to his purpose, being called according to his purpose is what he's going to begin trying to clarify and unravel in the next two verses. Uh, in these next two verses, beginning in verse 29, he starts talking about what God's plan has been all along. His plan was always to have a people who were made to be like Christ. And yes, they're made to be like Christ through their suffering with him, but they're also made to be like Christ through the glorification that he received. Jesus did die on the cross. He did suffer, but he was raised, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father to be enthroned in the mighty uh, throne room of God himself. And so Jesus, we have this story of, of suffering, but then also resurrection, glory, ascension, and enthronement. You have all of this in the central to the gospel of Christ. And what he's saying is God's plan all along has been to have a people, a group, who are like Christ, shaped into his image so that through suffering, we can receive the same type of glorification. This is, this is being made to be like Christ. And while he mentions that in verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined or he, he foreordained to become conformed to the image of his son. So that, they would be, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The idea is that God had in his mind to have a group of people who would be like his son, so that his son would have brothers, uh, so that his son would, would, have, uh, would be the oldest of many younger brothers who now live and act like him. That idea where he says, conformed to the image of his son, that is what we're talking about when we talk about suffering. But it's also what we're talking about when we talk about glory, because Jesus had both of those. And so we're supposed to suffer with him and be glorified with him. And I, I tell you how I can prove that. Uh, look back with me at Romans chapter 8, and uh, we'll, we'll start in verse 14. Start in verse 14, where it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So Jesus is the Son of God, but all of us who are led by the Spirit are also sons of God. For you, verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You remember Romans 6 when you were slaves to sin, but you were set freed from that through death to sin, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, he's saying you're not going back to that type of slavery again, but you have received a spirit. 
So not slavery to sin, but rather the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This, by the way, that us crying out, Abba, Father, that's us being sons of God. Again, that's, that's that same imagery of us being the children of God. Uh, verse 16, the Spirit himself, that's the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit, that is like your spirit as a human being, that we are children of God. So our spirit and the Holy Spirit are now united together, testifying with one voice that Abba, Father, that we are children of God, that we have become sons of God. And what does it mean that we're children of God and sons of God? It means that we've become brothers of Jesus and we've become like him. And if you see that next verse, verse 17, and if we're children, then we're heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So we've become children of God. That means we're heirs of God. That means Jesus, who is the Son of God, he's also an heir. So we're fellow heirs. Like, less than Jesus. We both are fellow heirs of God. We'll receive the gift from God. And here's what we will receive. He says that we will be fellow heirs within Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. From suffering to glory. That's the story that he's been talking about this whole time. That's the beginning of Romans 5. That's, that's the language I've been using this whole time. Jesus suffered, and if we're also sons of God, we suffer. But Jesus was glorified, and if we're sons of God, we're glorified. And through that process, we're with Christ. The whole, we suffer with him, we're glorified with him. And so if you want to be connected to Christ, suffering is one of those unique and profound moments in life in which you share in fellowship with Jesus because he was acquainted with suffering. He was acquainted with sorrow. He deeply experienced and understood what human suffering was about in even the deepest forms imaginable. Suffering links you to Christ, but it also gives you the hope that Christ uh, was able to to, uh, experience of the glorification that comes. And when you compare the two, you come to find out there's actually no comparison at all. The suffering is not even worthy to be compared with the glory. That's the next verse, verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the suffering of this present day time is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the suffering that we go through is the first step to the glory. Uh, that is what we mean when we talk about that process of God working all things for good. You're with Jesus going through the same story as Jesus, going through suffering to glory, and God is the one bringing that about because you have become fellow heirs with Jesus. You've become a a son of God or a child of God with Jesus. And so when he gets to verse 29, you find out, and this has been his plan all along. Those whom he foreknew, he foreordained that they would be made to be in the image of Jesus, that they would share in this and experience this with him. So we're in the image of Jesus when we suffer. And when we're in the image of Jesus, when we are faithful through suffering on the path to glorification. God has always wanted a family that looked like Jesus. That's what he foreordained, to have a family that looks like Jesus. Um, there are some, and I don't want to say like, a lot about this, but, but this is a famous verse uh, in Calvinism uh, where people use it to say something like, okay, so before the world began, God chose certain individuals uh, who he was, going to be sa- he was going to save, certain individuals who were going to be lost and condemned, and the certain individuals that are going to be saved, um, 
by no free will or choice of their own, God, through the Holy Spirit, uh, compelled them to, uh, to give uh, honor to Christ and to become followers of his. And uh, by doing this, they have guaranteed or been guaranteed salvation. But there is no personal human agency in the process. It is all an entire act of God's grace on that select few. Jesus died only for that select few uh, and not for everybody else. And that is uh, how there are some people who end up being you know, taken to heaven and other people are cast into hell, and the whole thing is the sovereign project of God. That's a lot more than these verses actually say. Um, the verses do say that God had people whom he foreknew. All right, what does it mean that God foreknows somebody? Well, it could be that God, it means basically that God knew them before they were even born. I mean, that that's, that's, could be part of the meaning of that word, although that's not always the meaning of that word. It also just means, like, people that God knew in the past, like, people that God pre-knew or foreknew. Like, in the past, there were people God knew. Uh, like, Israel would be those who God knew. In fact, if you look quickly at Romans chapter 11, in verses 1 and 2, that's exactly how Paul uses this language. He just uses it to talk about Israel. Uh, those were the people that God knew before. Um, and so, like, in Romans 11, 1 and 2, it says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. That's, that's his answer to a lot of the hypothetical questions that he brings up. Uh, that the answer is absolutely no. Like, shall we sin that grace may abound? No, absolutely not. Did God reject Israel? Did he reject his people? No, absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Uh, and, and so it, it often just means, very simply, that people that God knew in the past. And and if it's talking about Israel, which it is in chapter 11, right here in chapter 8, it could just be telling the story of, of Israel again, that God ch chose this people and among them wanted to have people who came to look like Christ and came to, to live in the image of Christ. Um, it also could be that God is talking about, yeah, that collection of people that we, we call the church, uh, that God knew beforehand what he was going to do, and he wanted the church to be people who are... Uh, image bearers of Christ, who live like Christ, suffer like Christ, and are going to be glorified like Christ. But when it mentions those whom he foreknew, he foreordained, there's nothing in that, and I think sometimes we, as soon as we see the word predestined or, or foreordained or something like that, we, we have a, an unhealthy, um, uh, only two avenues of, 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 of a, a two-dimensional thought that if God does something, that means there's no human free will or human agency. Or if humans do something, that means that is not the work of God. And I think that that is a, 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 an unhealthy way to view pretty much everything. Uh, by God foreordaining something, I don't think there's anything in that that removes the idea of human agency. Uh, a lot of times, in fact, most of the time, that we think about uh, what we give thanks to God for, very often human beings are involved in that process as well. Uh, I, I, before meals, I will say a prayer and I will thank God for this food, even though Lauren's the one who made it. We're the ones who went to the store. We're the ones who bought it. We're the ones who prepared it. Like, like you go through this whole process like where you do all of this stuff, and then you say thanks to God for the food. Why? Because 
even though we had some agency in the preparation and in the purchasing of the food and of the meal, and other humans too, whether it was at a farm or whether it was, you know, someone driving a truck to bring it to the store. Like, there are all kinds of humans involved in this thing. But the whole gift itself, the whole process of, of having food is something that we only have because of the way God made this world. And it's something that we only have because God is gracious to us to have plenty for people to be able to eat. And so, like, you can absolutely thank God for something or give credit to God for something, even though humans are involved in the process. Uh, sometimes when we read something about God saving or something like that, people want to take that as to mean, oh, okay, then humans didn't play a role in it. And I think that's, that's just a an unhealthy and unnecessary way to think. Uh, God can be given glory for salvation even though humans accepted the salvation. God can be given glory for this plan to have a group of people that we call the church who were conformed to the image of his son, even though they still had to accept that plan and join into it and become a part of it. And it's that people who have done that that are the called. In fact, that word, that's, that's what he says in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And if you look back to verse 28... Remember, that's who he's talking about. The people who suffer and, are, and God produces good out of that. He says, all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to bring them to glorification. And so they've been called, and Paul often uses this word called to, to mean those who have accepted the invitation of God. Those are the people who are the called. And so they have accepted what God has offered, and these who are called, he also justified. Now, how did that happen? Well, if you've read Romans, you know, if you've read like chapters one through four, there's a big lengthy discussion about how the justification process takes place by the faithfulness of Christ and by our faith in Christ. And so those who put their faith in Christ are those who have been called and who have been justified. And then you get that final phrase, he also glorified. Now that one's interesting. And that one creates a lot of discussion and conversation because We've already seen this context, this passage is about taking from suffering to glory. And yet, in the other passages that talk about glory, uh, let's, let's read the end of verse 17. It says, So that we may also be glorified with him. We suffer with him so that we may, in the future, be glorified with him. Uh, look at verse 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. So it's like the glory is a future thing there, right? Like glory is something that we're longing for and looking for. Uh, if you look at verse 21, this is talking about creation and how creation is part of the suffering process. And creation is longing for the redemption and the freedom that God's going to offer. But it says that, that the creation itself, will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So just like we have been slaves, creation itself has been enslaved. And you see it in the world all around you, and creation is longing for something better. It's longing for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a future thing, this glory that, that we're longing for and that we're hoping for. And so creation, verse 22, is groaning for that. And not only is creation, verse 23, says that we ourselves are groaning for that, in hope that we uh, that that, uh, that that will come. Uh, if you look at verses 26, the Holy Spirit that we have is also groaning for that day of glorification, for that day of of redemption. It's groaning 
for us on our behalf as we groan for it in prayer. So, so there, I mean, that, that's a word of comfort that when you go to God in prayer and you don't know exactly what to say, he can get the message of your heart through the Holy Spirit who is in you, who groans on your behalf to God. He can take the innermost longings of your heart and understand them and how they connect to the will of God and groan for you uh, on, on, behalf, on your behalf, uh, even though we are unable to do so. But in that, he is interceding for us. And through all of this suffering and all this groaning, there's this hope of glory. But all of those references to glory speak of suffering now, tribulation now, groaning now, and glory to come. Verse, 20, or verse 30 ends by saying, he predestined, he called, he justified, he also glorified. And it's in the past tense, just like all the other ones. So, have we been glorified? Or will we be glorified? Uh, and I think in this, you get the same type of language that you have uh, throughout a, a lot of topics um, in, in uh, Romans. For example, um, have we been raised with Christ yet? Well, yes and no. Uh, there's a sense in which we've been raised up with Christ when we were baptized and we died to sin and we've been raised up with Christ. Yes, we, we have experienced being raised with Christ and having new life in Christ. But we still long for that day when we will experience the ultimate resurrection with Jesus. It's something that we experience now, but it's something we also still hope for. The same thing is true of when it comes to, to salvation. Um, there is, in the book of Romans, a discussion about being saved from the wrath to come. Like, and there is the idea of a future hope of salvation. But then also in Romans 8, in verse 24... It says, in hope, we have been saved. And so even in the same book, you see language of longing for the resurrection or being raised with Christ, but experiencing being raised with Christ. You see longing for salvation and experiencing salvation. And I think you have the same thing with glory. You have the hope of longing for glory while at the same time experiencing glory. I think we experience glory of this new life that we share with Jesus. Jesus died and was raised, and we, through our baptism, have died with him and been raised up with him. That's part of the glory of God that we are sharing in now. Uh, when, when we receive the Holy Spirit, that's part of the very glory of God that we're able to receive and rejoice in now. Uh, we're able to, to share in that glorification process, and yet we're still longing for the ultimate day of complete and full glorification when that ultimate resurrection takes place, when the ultimate salvation is finally realized. And so you have this already glorified, not yet glorified language that's taking place. And what gives us hope and what gives us confidence that this will come about is the way that Romans 8 ends, which is how we ended the lesson this morning, uh, by talking about the love of God that we shall never be separated from. There's nothing on this earth more powerful than the love of God. There's nothing on this earth more powerful than, uh, that, that can pull you away from God's love. But again, that doesn't, I don't think any of these passages, uh, suggest that there's no human agency in this process. You can reject God's gift. You can reject God's offer. You can refuse God's love. The question is, what are you going to do with it? But the story is being told. And you, if you choose Christ, 
If you put your faith or your allegiance in Christ, then that's the, the justification that is being talked about. Uh, if you give your life to Christ in baptism and you die to sin and you're raised up with him to a new life, that is this process of glorification. Uh, if you remain faithful through suffering, you'll receive the ultimate glorification that Christ has prepared for you. But it's a tough journey. It's a difficult journey. But it's one that the longer we're on it, the more it conforms us to the image of Christ, which is what God foreknew would happen, which is what God preordained to happen, that we would be conformed to the image of his son so that he would have a Christ-shaped family. And we have the opportunity to be that family. And if there's anyone here uh, tonight who would like to become part of that Christ-shaped family, who would like to have your sins washed away in baptism and to name Jesus as Lord of your life and that you could die to sin and be made alive to God, that offer is yours and the invitation is yours. Please respond as we stand and as we sing.